I think the secret to finding your super creative powers is kind of been hidden in plain sight. I think it's right under your nose. It's literally at the tip of your tongue. Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. We help you build a thriving creative career. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza! You can stay up to date with all things Creative Pep Talk by following me on Instagram at Andy J. Pizza. Let's jump into today's episode. This episode is supported by In the Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Ushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new Fluid Engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're gonna be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was gonna tell you about this new site. Anyway, go check it out, anyjpizza.com if you wanna see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. Did you know that Superman used to work on a farm? I mean, not really. He, Superman didn't ever really exist, but in the, story, in the stories, as far as I know, he worked on his father's farm, Jonathan Kent's farm. He was a farmhand in high school, and I imagine that he was probably a pretty good one. And sometimes I like to think about what's the difference between super farmhand high school Clark Kent and what he becomes that is so much more. What's the difference between that high school version and the superhuman, super universe saving Superman? What's the difference between them? Because they're very, very different. Like, is like, is it their powers? Like, high school Clark Kent can't fly, can't do heat vision, can't do super enhanced hearing. Like, he's missing all of the goodies, right? He can probably lift more than the average teen, really bail, bail some hay, unlike his peers, like super hay baling powers. <laughs> but what's the difference? Is it their powers? No, it's not their powers because high school Clark Kent has the same powers as adult Superman. The difference is the awareness of the powers. The difference is self-awareness. And I don't know about you, but I often feel, and especially early in my career felt this way, that I had all this potential of being a super creative, but I was stuck bailing creative hay. I was stuck pixel pushing as a hired hand, if you will, stuck doing what any human on this planet could be doing. And that is really dehumanizing. Why? Why is it so dehumanizing to act like a cog in a machine that's a replaceable part? Because either through divine design or the power of evolution or whatever you want to call it, we've got a totally unique code flowing through our veins. And if we're not living into that, we're lying to ourselves and we're acting. 
if we act like a cog in a machine that's replaceable and living day to day in that kind of work, it just, just does not scratch the itch of our true potential. In fact, I think it chafes our soul and I've experienced that and it's just the worst. And so if you're there, I know you're with me on this, right? You want to find your superpowers. You want to have that self-knowledge so you can go from super farmhand Clark Kent to super human universe saving Superman. But where do we look for these powers? I think the secret to finding your super creative powers has kind of been hidden in plain sight. I think it's right under your nose. It's literally at the tip of your tongue. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. But I believe that historically, we've been looking in the wrong places. And it's why so many creatives that have the potential of being a super creative end up just stuck bailing creative hay. You've been told to start with your talent. What are you naturally better at than other people? What can you do that's better than what other people can do? Or they tell you, start start with what you love. Do what you love. Follow your bliss. Follow your passion. They tell you, just put 10,000 hours in and you'll be a master. Just keep swimming. Just keep making. That's the most quintessential creative career advice that you hear these days. And I think all of that advice, all of those starting blocks are missing the true link. I think all of it falls short of unlocking your potential. The true clue to unearthing your creative superpowers is something that I think has been quite elusive to us. But if we find this piece, I think that you can actually acquire talent. You can actually do incredibly amazing supernatural things with very little talent. I believe if you start with this missing piece, you can actually hack those 10,000 hours. You could possibly cut it in half. You can go way beyond those skilled masters. We all know those people that can play three chords on a guitar and have crazy hit records versus the people that can play every single note on the guitar and shred all day and night. We all know it's true. There's some missing link between this and it's not just putting in more time. So what is the missing link? I'm looking for my creative theory of everything, and I think we're missing our ghost particle. We have the whole equation. It all almost makes sense, but we're just missing this one little piece. And in this episode, I want to tell you what I believe it is and why I believe it is a complete and utter game changer. Let's do it. There's this video that went viral a couple years back. It's it's uh, Ira Glass, the host of the radio show and podcast, This American Life, talking about how you can become a master in your field and why so many creatives f- don't follow through. And he says at the beginning of this video that we all get into creativity because we have good taste. But the problem is we start making work and it's that same good taste that tells us our work isn't very good and that most people give up right then and there. But Those who will go through the process of putting in the time to bridge the gap, you know, the time, again, we're seeing this like 10,000 hours rule being the secret of great creativity, but those that will put in the time to bridge the gap between their taste and their work are the ones that become masters. This video went viral and I heard millions of people talk about it on podcasts and straight up in front of my face, just bring up that video over and over. And it moved me and it really gave me this enlightening perspective about putting in the time and effort and and the growth mindset and what you have to do to be a good creative without getting discouraged about the results that you're getting right now. And working through all that is super fantastic. Honestly, I think that there's there's some real gold there, but... I think that we're all missing the true brilliance of this video and of this idea. You see, at the start of the video, Ira Glass says that we all get into creativity because we have good taste. And I think the thing is, is when I heard him say that, I just kind of went, that's not true. (laughs) I didn't get into creative work because I had good taste. I got into it because I thought I was talented at illustration. I got into it because I thought I could be skilled. I could probably... You know, I felt like I was inspired by the masters and their skill, and I got into it because I love to draw. So when he said that we all got into this game because we had good taste, it really gave me pause. Has anything ever given you pause? 
It's quite an experience. In fact, next time anything gives you pause, just pause for a second and take note because it's it's quite choice to bring it up later in conversation. You sound very intellectual to say, hmm, it really gave me pause. Hmm. <laughs> but it did. It gave me, it gave me pause. Now I've said that too much, and now it sounds like I'm talking about pause, like P-A-W-S, like somehow it gave me bear pause. Yeah, I was listening to that video, and I and I transformed into a bear. <laughs> no, okay, let me get back on tra track here. But it did. It made me stop and think because I'd never heard anyone say that good taste was the foundation of creativity. Then I heard it again. Another one of my creative heroes is Gordon Ramsay, Chef Gordon Ramsay, and he was on Jimmy Kimmel, and Jimmy asked Gordon, what do you look for for potential in young chefs? You know, basically, how do you know a farmhand has the potential to be Superman? And in my mind, as soon as Jimmy Kimmel, I didn't realize I was doing this, but subconsciously, as soon as he asked that question, my mind is racing like to all the abilities that you could look for. You know, like like knife skills, uh, composition, dressing a plate really nicely. Maybe that's how you know. I don't know. I had no idea what he was going to say. But I was not expecting what he said. Gordon says, I look for taste. Do they have a sensitive palate? Can they tell the difference between good food and bad food? Because if they can't taste the difference, they have no ability to ever make great food. It was a forehead slapping moment for me. Now, I, right now, I'm just going to do a demonstration of that just to, you know, do a little radio drama kind of thing. So, but I'm going to have to slap it pretty hard for you to hear it. So if, if, I, if I don't come back, call somebody because I've slapped myself out. Did you hear that? Uh, <laughs> that's what I did when I heard the when I heard Gordon Ramsay say that it was taste. I was like, "Whoa! A connection, a pattern." Ira and Gordon, two of my creative heroes, they both think it's taste that's the start. Taste is the sign of hidden potential. I think this is an earth-shattering paradigm shift that you need to embrace on a fundamental level. I think it changes the entire way that we think about what creativity is all about. See, we believe that creativity is about our abilities, and yet here are the masters saying that it's not our abilities, but our sense abilities, right? It's not our talent, it's not our passion, it's not our skill, but it's, it's not what we can give, it's what we can receive on a nuanced, deeper level. It's our sensitivity, it's what we can taste, it's our palate that enables us to do great things. If I asked you what makes a great musician, what would you say? Probably some kind of incredible ability to play an instrument, but it's absolutely not true. The people that are the most successful, the people that are the most successful in art and business and music are not the people that are most technically talented at their instrument. But the 10,000 hours rule, the mastery rule, the bridging the gap rule would tell you that that's, that's the person that's supposed to be succeeding. So it's something else. It's something more elusive than that, right? I would argue it's not an ability to play an instrument technically better than other people, but it's an ear, it's an ear, a sense, an ear for music, an ear for what makes good music. It, it's an intuition. It's a guide. It's taste. It's the, mmm, that sounds good. That, not just that sounds good, but I can pick up on the nuances of the flavors and the ingredient pairings of the notes. And I know that when you place this note with that note in a rest right here, it makes this delicious flavor of a song. And it's the secret of great creativity, in my humble opinion. You can even have a really unorthodox talent, an unorthodox voice, like, you know, Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins, the whole, like, I don't know how he sings, but it's kind of like that. And uh, nobody in his childhood thought, you've got a talent for singing. 
you should be a singer. Yeah, n- no, that's that, that's not true. It was not his level of talent that unlocked the mega success of Smashing Pumpkins. It was his intuition of what to do with that ingredient. It was the intuition, his sensitivity, not his ability. You know, one of my favorite musicians of all time has a really unique voice. It's not unlike mine. It's kind of the nasally Midwestern voice. Uh, It's my friend Yoni Wolf, and he did the theme music to this show. It's one of his songs with the band Y. Uh, in college, they were like my all-time favorite band. I was completely obsessed, and I had the good fortune of getting to meet him and getting to work with him. Uh, But when I was interviewing him a few years ago for this show, he said that every creative endeavor, whether that's a a chorus or a verse or a song or an album or a career, it's all about binary micro choices. Like, is this note or that note going to be good? Is this drum or that drum going to be good? It's all this intuition of what's good and what's bad. And how do you make those decisions? You do it with your own sensitivity. You do it by tapping into your own emotional core, your own sensitivity and feeling through each decision which feels right. And that's why it's all about palate. What can you taste? Can you, you have to be able to feel like, ooh, that does it for me and that doesn't. You've heard the golden rule, do unto others as you want done to you. It sounds like, be nice. You like when people are nice to you, right? But no, I believe there's a deeper universe shattering secret about existence in that. It means understand your taste, your palate, understand what makes you feel loved, excited, hopeful, uh, sad, humorous, laughter. What, What does those things to you? And then go give those to other people. This podcast is an exercise in that. I don't make creative pep talks because I'm a peppy person. I do it because I need pep talks and that sensitivity, that palette of knowing what gets me pepped and what doesn't and kind of having that metal detector allows me to do it for other people. I believe that is the secret to creativity. I believe that's the secret to life. And in this episode, I want to tell you how to do it, how to let not your talent, not your skill, not your passion lead the way in your creativity, but how to guide your creative career in a lifelong way with taste at the forefront. Let's do it. This is my six step process for using taste as your compass to navigate your career for the best possible results. Let's go. So if creativity starts with good taste, what is the start of good taste? Number one is cleanse your palate. It's time to partake in some of that ginger before you start chowing down on the sushi. Uh, (laughs) And here's the thing. Here's what I freaking love. Probably my favorite part of this taste revolution in my creativity is that there's a thing known as acquired taste, right? The first time you eat some of those olives or blue cheese or that IPA and you say, ah, disgusting. What is this, a dead foot? I don't want any of those dead feet in my mouth. The first time you eat it, it tastes like that. Second time, a little bit worse. Now it tastes like an old sock, but it's not quite dead. It's a living sock. And uh, which sounds even less tasty, but somehow in my mind it made more sense. Uh, But but each time you taste one of those sun-dried tomatoes, you all of a sudden you're like, you know what? I'm picking up on a little uh, olive oil from the Tuscan region. What what's going on here? And you start acquiring good taste. Like some of the most refined, tasty experiences I've had were the worst the first time I tasted them. 
And so if you've listened to this podcast for even more than one episode, you know I'm very obsessed with this idea of the growth mindset. It comes from Dr. Carol Dweck in the book Mindset. And it's just this idea that your talent, your skill, your abilities, they are malleable, they are moldable, you can enhance them over time. What you've got is not a fixed amount. And the same goes for taste, is that taste is something that can be acquired. Yes, I agree that you should start with whatever you think your super palate is. Do you have an ear for music? Do you have an eye for pictures? Do you have a, a, a tongue for food? Like, yeah, start there. And it's true. Like, not every person could be an, uh, a superstar athlete. Like, you do need to lead with some of your innate DNA, but every one of your tastes can be acquired and because you know this and other creatives don't, you actually can, uh, and the other thing is, taste is an intuition that can help you overcompensate for lack of innate ability. You can actually do really interesting things with good taste with very little talent. And so, how do you acquire good taste? I think it starts in humility. You know, when I was in high school, I got super into what I now believe to be a very lame band, mainly just out of ignorance. And I like made it part of my identity. And I'm not going to say what the band is here because I don't want to embarrass anybody or make fun of anybody or make fun of the band, whatever. I just don't like being mean, but uh, I got super into this band and I was just looking for anything for identity formation. And, uh, you know, I was just waxing poetic about this pop radio band and my friend who was like really knowledgeable about music was like Andy let me stop you right there let me explain to you why that isn't very good and uh, let me introduce you to some actual good music and it was kind of a humiliating experience is probably the reason why I, I remember it a, uh, over a decade later uh, but that was the key that humiliation was the key to locking a humility that allowed me to start acquiring good taste. This person actually knew what they were talking about. They gave me an education on music and, and unlocked a new sensitivity. And I believe that the, the start of acquiring good taste is cleansing your palate. It's admitting that you don't know. This is why I think so many people with good talent uh, start with having an older sibling that they give an authority in their life to say this is good or this is bad. I think it all starts with a willingness to learn, to humble yourself. You know, maybe you wanted to be part of a scene. You had this motivation to be reborn, right? And so that was the start of me getting into good music and band posters and ultimately what led me to where I am today. There's this amazing quote by the philosopher Epictetus that says, you can't learn what you think you already know. And if you think you already know what's good, you might not ever really find it. You might completely be ignorant. And so I believe when it's time to start a new journey of taste, you've got to cleanse your palate. You've got to go through seasons of your life. You can't stay here, and we're gonna to get to that in a minute, but you've gotta go through seasons of your life where you say, you know what, I don't know what's good anymore. And uh, it can be at the start of your journey, could be at the end of another journey, but at some point, at many points in your career, you have to give up what you think you know to learn what you don't, and that's step one. Number two is identify your super sense. What is your super taste? So if it's not about ability, you know, one of the things, the reasons why I think talent is such a terrible place to start is that you can't really identify your talent. Like we have this vision of if you're supposed to be a musician, you should be picking up a guitar at some point, you know, and you're like, what is this thing? Do you hold it like this? Is it under your armpit kind of thing or what? Just and you start noodling and all of a sudden, and the whole, whole uh, guitar city stops and looks over and like, what is this? Like that's the version of the story of the birth of a new creative genius in our minds. But that's just not the way it goes. You, anybody that hasn't touched a guitar doesn't know how to hold it, doesn't know how to play it. Like that's not 
the starting block, if you will. So what is, how do you identify where you have some supernatural taste? And I would actually just uh, even encourage you to cleanse your palate, even if you're in the illustration field, even if you're in the writing field, even if you're in uh, the design or the music or whatever field you think you're in, I encourage you to cleanse your palate, cleanse your knowledge of what you think is special about you and go into a more nuanced way of thinking about this. Even if you've built a career in one of those areas, if you identify a different super taste, if maybe you have more of an ear than an eye or whatever, I encourage you to use that to actually make a name for yourself, to break free, to use it as a niche-defining differentiator within whatever field you've been making your way in. For me personally, right, I feel like I had an ear for what makes a good talk, what moves me. You know, uh, there's the, I, I think all the time about stand-up comedy versus whatever the opposite of that is. It doesn't have to be necessarily making people cry, but what is it some, that makes them not laugh and feel light, but instead feel grounded and feel uh, moved on an emotional core level? I feel like I have a good sensitivity of that. If I can pick up on those flavors and I decided when I realized that that was part of my taste, I started to, that's what made me create this podcast because uh, even though I was still in the field of illustration, I wanted to use some of that innate taste. So even if you think you know what it is, I encourage you to cleanse that palate and get a deeper sense of it. So how do you find your super taste or your super sense? I have a few hints. The first one is recommendations. What do people ask you for recommendations on? Because that'll tell you something about your palate and your ability to create. So maybe everyone asks you for good books to read, good albums. They ask you to make you playlists. Like they've asked you to decorate their, you know, decorating decisions. What is it? What are the things that people, your family and friends come to you for? Because they trust your taste. That's, an, that's, a, uh, that's a clue. What are you psychic about? What do you see coming years before other people do in fields? Like what can you notice? Like that, what are the trends that you forecast before anybody else in your life? Like even what do you notice? Like uh, maybe you notice the plot twist before anybody else. Maybe you've got a sensitivity to story structure or, uh, uh, or screenwriting. Like what are you picking up on the nuance of those flavors and you can see stuff coming before other people? This is a weird one, but I think it's really true. There's, you know, if you're looking for your sensitivity, nothing is more sensitive than a wound, like a childhood wound, something that hurts you really deeply and you need healing for. You're going to be gravitating towards, you're going to be highly sensitive to the types of creativity that really heals that thing. For me, it's, I'm, it's very easy for me to fall into hopelessness. If I, if I don't have a vision of the future that compels me, I can get extremely discouraged. And so anything, any idea, any notion, any, any story, whatever, that gives me hope about the future, I have a deep sensitivity to it. I have that spidey sense, that metal detector, and I can put those in my little pouch and carry them along. And it means that I'm making, I'm good at making work that brings hope to people because of that wound. And so wounds are really sensitive. And the last one I would say is what makes you, what's the bad that makes you mad? Like what's the kind of creativity that really gets under your skin where you're like, oh, that's terrible. Like the thing that makes you really mad, like that emotional core is really easy to remember. That's why it's a good indicator. It's a good clue because you can remember like, oh, I hate when a song does that. Why do they do that? If you know what's bad, then you must know what's good and that's called taste. So those are some of the hints to help identify your super taste. Number three is define what's good. Robert De Niro said, talent is in the choices. He's saying when you're an actor, all you've got is how you decide to do something. And that, that decision matrix, that uh, view, it's a point of view. It's saying, this is what I think is good. This is my creative intuition. And I believe after you've cleansed your palate, you've identified your super sense, then it's time to stake your claim for a season of time and say, this is what I think makes good creative work in my field. 
And I believe that, you know, comedians are kind of the super creatives because they have such a clear metric of what's good. They have this clear idea of this is what we're going for. We're trying to make people laugh. And with the clarity of that target, they can measure what matters. They can they can adjust, they can fine tune, they can be pitch perfect because they have such a clarity on their definition of good. And all these comedians you'll see will even take it further to say, I want these types of laughs, not those types of laughs. Like those types of laughs are hack comedy or it's the low hanging fruit. I want these types of laughs. And you've got to define what do you think is good? Do you know who Dieter Rams is? He was this, he's this product design godfather. He was the head of Braun product design back in the day. You know, the razors, the radios, the what have you. Like his design influences and impacts everything that Apple makes today. You can actually go search it on the internet, compare Braun products from mid-century to products that Apple make now, and you'll see like their handheld radio is uh, nearly identical to the iPod. Like, And there's tons of more connections after that. But Dieter Rams, this master, how did he become a master? I believe it's partially due to his definition of good. He had this 10 rules of good design. And I recommend you do the same. You actually make a list. Sister Corita Kent, someone in a totally different field, totally different type of creativity. Uh, she was this crazy, wild, screen-printing nun, super inspiring, really interesting character. She had this list of like 12 class rules, and it was her definition of good creativity. And one of those rules was find a place to trust and try trusting it for a while. And that's what we're talking about right now. Find some definitions of good that you feel like you can trust right now, and let's just Try trusting that for a while. Try using that definition of good to help you navigate your creative decisions for a season of your life. So I have a little exercise that I believe will help you get started on your own list of what's good creativity in your field. And I think it comes through this other definition of taste. So I think taste is creative intuition, but I also think it is the overlap sliver of the Venn diagram of timeliness and timelessness. I think as a creative person, you probably lean one way or the other. You're either all about the fashionable trends, the zeitgeist of the moment, or you think everything's about class, sophistication, and timelessness, you know, creativity that can stand the test of time. Like you probably lean one way or the other, but I would argue in terms of uh, making great work that you really got to create within a balance of those things. And sometimes I think you have to push against your nature a little bit and kind of equalize those forces because I think great creativity is, yeah, about class. It's about um, making something that lasts, but it's also so about saying something that needs to be said right now. It's about tapping into the cultural moment and saying, you know what? This is missing from the conversation. Even if it's a truth that comes from yesteryear, we need to hear this right now. And so I think it's important to balance these two things. And I think in order to get started on your list, uh, even if you're starting from like scratch and you're, and you're like, I really don't know exactly what I think is good, here's what I recommend you do. I recommend you find three contemporary artists that you think are making quote unquote good work and then take three old artists from yesteryear, maybe 50 years ago, maybe 100 years ago, uh, maybe 20 years ago, maybe 30, maybe 40, but you know, several decades back, take six of these artists and they should all be things that are lighting up that those taste buds for you. They're like, ah, oh, this is good stuff. And then try to find the things that they have in common. The things that they have in common are not their, uh, any of those artists' intellectual property. And for me, this was an absolute breakthrough. I got these artists, I put them on Pinterest, and I actually did way more than 
three old and three new. I did probably like a hundred people. And I just started trying to find the patterns between them. And I started to notice things like, you know, I really liked flat images uh, with not tons of perspective. I liked uh, flat color. I liked these kinds of uh, analog textures and, and techniques. I liked, you know, all these things, creating this list of 10 things that define good both from timeless resources and timely resources. And I think if you start doing that process, you can create your own top 10 definition of good creative work. And that will start helping you have a compass, a creative intuition that you can lean on as you make your creativity in the next season. Since we're talking taste, this will be your recipe, if you will, for making good creative work. So what's your top 10 ingredients for great creative work? All right, step four. Now this is where things get good. This is where the story really gets juicy. These are some tasty juices flowing right now. (laughs) uh, Here's what happens, okay? Uh, we've talked about this on the show, this idea that stories are a three-act system. You've got thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Thesis is what the character wants. Antithesis is the things that come against that character to stop them from succeeding. And then synthesis is how what they want and what came against them come together to create an end to that story. Well, this story, you said your thesis, this is what I think is good. These artists are good. Then what antithesis happens is I'm not good. I don't have what these artists have. And so the story becomes trying to bridge that gap, as Ira Glass would say. And you start looking at what you think is good and the difference between that and your work. And you start working it out in the work, making stuff to try to bridge that gap. But you know what synthesis is? Synthesis happens. Number four on this list happens when you realize that you'll never bridge the gap. That number four is born when you fail. When you realize you'll never be good. You'll never be good like your heroes. And number four is saying nothing could be better than that. That type of synthesis is one of the most beautiful parts of the creative's journey. Why? Because number four is not replicating good, but redefining it. It's not just having good taste, but what this journey is really all about is becoming a taste maker, redefining what our culture sees as good through the lens of your point of view. And I believe that starts when you fail, when you realize I will never be my hero. No matter how much effort and time and energy you put in, you will never be able to do what those people do and nothing could be better news because we don't need those people replicated. We need something totally different and it starts by failing miserably. You know, in all of the stories, this happens. Like Luke Skywalker can't be Ben Kenobi, can't be Yoda. Moana can't be Maui. Neo can't be Morpheus. But the world doesn't need another Morpheus. It needs you, Neo. It needs your freshness, right? By the way, just a quick aside on Star Wars, something I wanted to share with y'all. Me and my brother Josh, we were thinking about episodes one through three of Star Wars, and uh, man, I wish that George Lucas had this taste series before he created that. And here's our solution for how how he could have made episodes one through three amazing. What if episode one was the story of Yoda? What if episode two was the story of Obi-Wan Kenobi, and episode three was the story of Darth Vader? 
Oh my gosh, we just made a billion dollars right here, right now, and fixed the most problematic uh, parts of the Star Wars story. Anyway, that's not what it's about, although I do think that those decisions would have been phenomenal taste. I, Dude, I want to have Yoda's story. It makes me angry that we don't have that. But here's the thing. Your story isn't Yoda's story. Luke Skywalker becomes the hero when he says, no, Yoda, I'm not going to train anymore. There's a disturbance in the force, and I need to be there for my friends, Han and Leia, and I am actively disobeying you. That's when the stuff gets good. That's when you do number four. That's when you start making taste instead of replicating and obeying it. And so with that list of 10 rules, the next part of the process is to go through those rules and say, which of these are a gap that I need to bridge and which of these are my niche? Which of these can I never obey? Which of these are gonna, am I going to actively disobey? You know, it's that classic Picasso quote. Who knows if he said it? I don't know. Could probably was Mark Twain or Abraham Lincoln, but uh, he, he said that you got to learn the rules like a pro so you can break them like an artist. And I see this all the time. You know, my, you know one of my all-time favorite bands, the 1975. Everybody's getting on the band wagon, if you will. Uh, because, that, that, that worked better than I meant it to. Um, but everybody's getting on the bandwagon now that 1975 got best song of the year from Pitchfork and got best album of the year from the Brit Awards. Like, where were you in 2013 when they released their first EP? I was there. And you know what I was saying? I was saying, you know what? These boys are doing something interesting with emo. Like, how is this emo tasting so good on my talent, uh, on my palate when emo died years ago? And emo's quote unquote bad creativity, as we all agreed at some point. And that was them breaking the rules. Now they added some good taste. They were, you know, influenced by Seager Ross and hip hop and, and a bunch of other things. But ultimately, they put a little of that emo, a little of that pop punk in there. And that thing that was disobeying the cultural zeitgeist all of a sudden became it. Now you're seeing people like uh, Brandon Urey from Panic at the Disco and all these, all this stuff coming back and being reinvented and, and all of a sudden palatable again with some different ingredients. You see it all the time in, in food culture. You know, things that were popular in the 70s get reinvented. Um, what are the things that you like that maybe other people see as guilty pleasures or bad? What are the ways that you can't measure up to your heroes? How do they then redefine good? Because that's where it gets interesting. Not where you're replicating, but you're creating new taste. Number five is you got to put it to the taste test. All this time you've been defining good and coming up with your rules and thinking about, you know, what you think is the definition of good. And now it's time to put that to the test. It's not enough to just have a hunch. You've actually got to play it out in the market, play it out in the real world and get some actual data and results so that you can move forward. So I take this idea from Seth Godin, another one of my creative heroes that talks about taste. He doesn't call this his taste test, but I've deemed it that. But essentially he said, here's what you got to do. If you think you know what's good, if you think you've got good taste, then you need to, let's say you're a writer and you say, I'm going to write a short story that I think is lighten up my taste buds uh, on the inside, your internal taste buds. That sounds gross, but that's what he says. Write it out. Give it to 10 of your friends. If they don't share it with anybody, you were wrong. That is not good taste. And you need to go back to the drawing board. And so you got to go work it out in the work. You got to go make projects. You got to go make personal stuff and publish it out into the world and see what the response is from the people that you want to resonate with. You don't have to resonate with everybody. You don't have to take everybody's feedback. But the people that have a palette like you, the people that would say, you know, put the same kind of artists on their list as, as you would, um, you got to see how, how it tastes to them. Does it taste good? Put them through the taste test. At the beginning of this show, I talked about how some of the creative advice that you hear over and over all the time is just keep making, just put in those 10,000 hours, just keep going, put your head down with the grit and just 
ignore all of the results, ignore everybody saying, stop, turn around. Like, I think that's kind of how you get those people on uh, American Idol that can't sing a note and they think they're going to be pop stars. Uh, those are the people that just kept swimming. <laughs> but I think we should listen to Ross instead of Dory. So Dory would have you just keep making, just keep making. But instead, let's listen to my man, Ross. He's not really my man. He was probably my least favorite character on Friends. Uh, but, but, but Ross, I think, has it. And what does Ross say? Pivot! Pivot! He's the guy who pivots. So I don't think the secret to having a thriving creative career is just keep making. I think it's just keep pivoting. Just put some stuff out there, see how it goes, and then adjust as needed. If you do that long enough, if you continually pivot, you will pivot your way to that sweet spot that you're looking for. I call this process of putting work out, making stuff, and learning at the same time, creating and learning at the same time. I call it writing on stage. Writing on stage, it's a term that you hear stand-up comics use all the time. And if, you have, if you've never heard of that, basically the idea is that you know, comics, they have these giant comedy specials and in them they're like pitch perfect, they're like word perfect, every pause, every rest, it's like a, it's like writing a composition, like writing a song, like writing a, a, a movement and every word needs to be just where it is and there's just this finesse and this musicality to what they're doing. But most of these comedians don't get there by ever putting a pen to the page with ever typing out a word. And how do they do that? They do that by writing on stage, by working it out in real time, in real life. They, they, instead of sitting back and, uh, you know, trusting their own creative intuition to lead them 100%, they, you know, they don't sit in a room and write these comedy specials and then say, I'm ready to record a comedy special. No, they don't do that at all. They write on stage. They take a bunch of little hunches and they bring them to the clubs and they try it out and they say, I think this is funny. Is this funny? And I thought that was really going to be funny, but it wasn't funny. And then this thing that I added to it on stage in real time, working it out in the work, that became the funny thing. And so there's this real humility to that. And they pivot their way to these comedy specials. And so you see this same writing on stage process in good marketing practices today. There's this book I've mentioned on the show a million times called Growth Hacker Marketing by Ryan Holiday. And in that, he details the process of what he calls MVP to PMF. And yes, those are a lot of letters that I'm throwing at you right now, but just stick with me and I'll explain it. But it's essentially the exact same process of writing on stage. So Ryan Holiday says that uh, he works with a lot of authors and rarely does he see a bestseller that comes from a creative person going into the woods on the back of this one hunch of like, this is going to be phenomenal creative success. And I'm just going to go in the woods and write my whole book and then go publish it. And the world's just going to go bonkers for it. Like rarely does that process get good results. And yet this is what we think of as good creativity. These are the myths that we tell us of what leads to great work. In fact, the opposite works so much better. Ryan Holiday even talks about how this book, Growth Hacker Marketing, it's very meta because he used this process to create the book. He used this process of MVP, minimal viable product, and to find product market fit, PMF. Uh, he, he started with blog posts. These were the minimal viable products. Every single blog post he published is essentially like a potential book. And then the ones that rise to the top, the blog posts that were unusually popular, he would turn into an ebook. And the ebooks that performed the most, he would turn into a self-published book or a, 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 a you know a, a first draft book, and then an expanded version of the book. And I believe this is the way that you're going to find that resonance. And that resonance is called product market fit. Product market fit is where you find what you have that your audience actually really wants. And we see this in the tech world all the time. This is where you get these giant companies like Instagram. Instagram started as Bourbon, which was a location-based social app where you could like check into different areas that you were drinking and whatever. But they noticed 
through this minimal viable product, this thing, the simplest, easiest version that, that was still good that they could get out there to the market, they noticed that people would go into their app called Bourbon, use their photo filters, and then post those photos on other social platforms. And so they pivoted, they changed to find that product market fit, they changed to just be a photo sharing app. And you can do the same thing. And this podcast, this is meta right now because we did. I did the same thing. My minimal viable product, the thing that I could put out, the most simple, easy thing to ship that I still thought had the essence of good was me just recording 15-minute little podcasts on my bike trail, on my iPhone, and then uploading them to this RSS feed and just started to make, work out what I thought good podcasting would be by making stuff, making and learning at the same time. And essentially, if you do this, you're, you know, the old way of creativity of going into a room and taking this one hunch is essentially taking your savings account and betting it on one horse that you've got a feeling about. And this writing on stage process, this is essentially looking at the data, looking at the performance of these horses and diversifying your investment. All right, our final step, step six. So have you ever noticed that like the first time you eat Indian food, you're like, the taste sensation. This is amazing. Whoa. And that's, you know, a particular type of food will just explode and there'll be those kind of restaurants popping up all over the place. But then a decade later, you know, 20 years later, it, the tastes have shift and there's something new. You know, right now, Israeli food is like doing it for me. There was this Israeli uh, food culture movement that popped up in London and this guy named Adelingi was writing these books called Jerusalem and writing these recipes for the Guardian newspaper and they turned into uh, several restaurants in London and now they're in LA and all over the place. They're just popping up. There's a great one uh, inspired by that movement here in Columbus, Ohio called Brassica. If you're ever in Columbus, Ohio, go to Brassica. There is some delicious flavors going on. That is some good taste. But you also probably notice that the stuff that made you laugh, the comedies from the 90s, aren't really palatable anymore. They're not really doing it for you. So like taste has an expiration. We don't like it. We don't like the impermanence of life. We want things to be completely timeless. But that's just not the way creative work works. There is that factor of timeliness. You know, I think I always grew up uh, hearing just these like spiritual ideas of like, you know, don't, don't buy into things that uh, can't fulfill you in the long term. But, but what about food? Like you, you eat now and you got to eat now just because you get hungry later. doesn't mean that you, that food is bad. And the same goes for taste. Like just because taste has an expiration date doesn't mean that we should just completely ignore it. And so your your taste has an expiration date. There's going to come a time where you're going to have to burn that definition of good. You're going to have to burn that list and start over. And it might be five years from now. It might be 10 years from now. But at some point, you got to do step six, and that is reinvent yourself. You know, I was reading this article. I believe it was the New York Times. I'm going to try to put it in the show notes. Uh, as an interview with Chevy Chase. Now, I don't know if you knew this. I didn't know this. Uh, I was too young or not alive to, to witness all this happen. But Chevy Chase was like a mega superstar in the 80s. The first season of Saturday Night Live, it was like the Chevy Chase show almost. People were so crazy about him. And he was like the first kind of one part heartthrob, one part comedian. It was just this whole new fresh thing that everybody was freaking out about. He made three comedies in the 80s that defined 80s comedy, Fletch, Caddyshack, and uh, Family Vacation. And he was just like a super megastar. But this article is kind of about, kind of the article and the story of his demise. And uh, they talked to Lorne Michaels about it, the creator of Saturday Night Live. And Lorne was just like, here's the thing about Chevy. He never reinvented yourself, himself. And that good creative work is always about reinvention. 
And I think if you compare him to one of his contemporaries, Steve Martin, like Steve Martin, you might not know this. You might not even think of Steve Martin as somebody who is a a comedic genius, but he started in stand-up comedy. And at the time, he was like the greatest of all time. He can completely reinvented the form. He was selling selling out stadiums. And when he started to notice that the taste was starting to shift, that that was just just ever so slightly starting to uh, dry up, he shifted his focus. And he did that over and over and over again. And so he still is touring and selling out shows and reinventing new things. And, and uh, you know, we probably think of him completely differently than what people thought of him uh, 10 years ago and, and even uh, vastly differently from 20 years ago. And so it's part of the reason I love this process so much is that it's so evergreen. I believe that you could use this six-step process for a lifelong tool to help guide you in your creative career. And so there comes a time in your process when you've cleansed your palate, you identified your super sense, you created, you defined what's good, you started to break those rules and make some taste, you put that taste to the test, and you made some progress, you got somewhere better than where you were, And at some point, you're going to have to go back to step one. You're going to have to cleanse your palate. You're going to have to let go of your definitions and your point of view and become a student again and admit what you don't know to find out what you need to know. And so step six is reinvent yourself. And so if things are getting stale, if things have lost their flavor in your creative career, it might be time to do step six. So I imagine that super farmhand high school Clark Kent was kind of aware of his abilities, like his super strength. He probably noticed he could bale hay further than anyone and like pull a tractor with ease. And uh, maybe even he was trying to maximize that potential of his abilities. He was putting the 10,000 hours you know, pumping iron at the gym, maybe thinking of going into bodybuilding. But there comes this time where he's, you know, pumping iron at the gym in high school that everything changes. And it starts with just a voice in his ear. It's the voice of his father, not his adopted farm father, but his biological alien father, Jarrell. And this voice tells him, you're more. You have so much more potentials beyond your abilities. It's not just about your abilities. It's your sense abilities. You have a super sense of hearing. You have super eyes that have x-ray vision and can shoot like heat vision. You can fly. You're, you've got so much more going for you beyond your abilities. And this voice in the ear, this voice in his ear creates a new story, a new trajectory. It is the moment when everything changes. And right now, there's a voice in your ear. And right now, I am your creative father. And I'm telling you, it's not your abilities. It's your sense abilities. Quit grinding in your super strength and tap into your innate potential. And I'm going to tell you the exact thing that Jarrell told his son. You are more. There is more potential lying dormant right below the surface and you didn't know where to look and you didn't know where to turn and you didn't know how to unlock it. But I believe if you will start with your creative taste, that things are about to get super tasty.
All right, so I don't usually do this, but I am super excited about this episode. This is a concept and an idea that I've been working on for a long time. This process is something I've worked out through coaching coaching calls and writing and, and just a whole giant process, and I am really, really excited to finally be able to release this to you. I actually have other plans for this content. I want to do a bunch of uh, interesting stuff, but... There's this thing, you know, Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk talks about, it's called jab, 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 right hook. And it's essentially this idea of give, 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 ask. And basically, you know, I try my best every week to show up with the most generous offering of creative pep that I can deliver. And I try really hard not to ask much of my audience, but I want to ask you a favor right now. If the flavor of this episode really hits you in the taste buds if it felt good if you if you feel like it's going to help if you feel like it's going to make a difference i would ask you to please uh, more than any other episode would you do me a favor and share it with anybody that you think needs to hear this content anybody any creative person or just any person in your life that you think this could unlock some new potential uh, if you would go on social media and go in your real life and go in your text messages and go in your DMs and just spread the word about this episode, I would love to get the word out on this episode beyond any other episode we've done to, to date this far. I'd really, really appreciate it. I hope that, uh, I hope you feel, uh, I hope you feel inclined to do so. Really appreciate it all of the help on getting the word out about this taste concept because I think it has the potential to make some of the biggest impact of any episode we've done to date. So thank you. Thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music. Thanks to Alex Sugg for our soundtrack. Um, Thanks to all you guys for listening. I hope you love this episode. And until we speak again, stay pepped up. 